Among the Syrian immigrants in this country are those who, whenever they witness Syria's apparition crying for help, turn away. For that fraught apparition reminds them of their duty towards their mother country, and they hate remembering this duty. They declare, what have we to do with Syria? Let the dead bury the dead. We are Americans. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I am Chris Grayton. Uh, the quotation that I just read uh, comes from the dissertation of today's guest. It is a passage that appeared in an Arab-American newspaper uh, in 1925 within the context of uh, the revolt in Syria, which is today's subject. Now our guest, the author of that newly finished dissertation, uh, is Reem Bailouni. Dr. Bailouni uh, is a graduate of the History Department at UCLA. She is currently teaching uh, at Smith College, uh, w- from where we're recording today in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, a, n- a, new, a new place for me. Uh, Reem, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Your dissertation, which, if I'm summarizing correctly, looks at the international or diasporic participation of Syrians around the world in uh, the Great Syrian Revolt. This study, for me, was something that caught me by surprise because I've read Michael Provence's uh, book on the Great Syrian Revolt. And after reading that book, I kind of said to myself, well, this is pretty much what I need to know about this revolt. And then you taking this international context, indeed this transnational context that you're talking about, it just shows you how political events that we think are familiar, we think that we know have these totally unexplored aspects. So that being said, I, I, I want to start off by asking you, you refer to the, the Syrian revolt of 1925, and a little bit later I'll ask you to explain kind of the, the basic contours of that for our audience, but you refer to this revolt uh, as a transnational rebellion. What did you mean in adopting the term transnational rebellion? What made it transnational in, in opposition to other rebellions that had happened in the region? Mm-hmm. Well, two things mainly when I'm describing the revolt as a transnational rebellion. The first is it describes the long-distance nationalism of Syrian Lebanese migrant communities in relationship to the 1925 revolt. Syrians and Lebanese in the United States, in Latin America, in Egypt, and elsewhere were reading about the rebellion in the pages of the global press. They were writing and debating about the rebellion in the robust Mahjar press Mm -hmm. or diaspora press. And they were in many ways producing and constructing the rebellion through the production of um, various forms of propaganda and literature. Mm. But beyond this discursive um, engagement with the rebellion, they were also participating in the rebellion through the organization of various political meetings and conferences. They were organizing and mobilizing around the League of Nations through petition campaigns, and they were also um, mainly fundraising for Mm -hmm. victims, for civilians, and for the rebels alike. Relief and uh, material support for the rebellion. Exactly. In addition to that, you have key immigrant figures, um, mainly associated with the Syro-Palestinian Congress, based in Egypt and in Geneva, who acted as the outside representatives for the Syrian uh, rebels. 
from their bases in Egypt and in, in Cairo mainly and in Geneva. One of these main figures, Sheki Barslan, Amir Sheki Barslan, who is a famous figure, um, he acted as the outside representative, but he was also um, designated by, uh, by the Druze leader, Sultan Pasha al-Atrash, as, um, as an outside spokesperson mm -hmm. for the rebellion. Um, and in addition to that, you have groups in the Mahjar, in Transjordan and in Egypt, and even in the nascent Republic of Turkey, who were sending money, munitions, supplies, mm -hmm across borders into the Syrian uh, state and sending the rebels funds and supplies that way. And this is, this is a very fascinating context. Uh, I can't think of an earlier example of such a rebellion uh, having that kind of international support in Syria. We have similar things happening, of course, with, with Armenians during the post-war period. And one could argue that there had been such... Uh, organizations in, in Egypt and whatnot. But at any rate, this is sort of a novel uh, political phenomenon within the context of, you know, greater Syria, what today we call Syria. Um, but before we go deeper into that uh, diaspora context, the Mahjar you mentioned, uh, we should probably uh, talk about some of the basics of this revolt. It's, it's a revolt against uh, the French mandate government in Syria, which uh, at this point had been there officially for about uh, five years, give or take. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, previous scholarship has pointed to the, uh, you know, intensely local origins of the rebellion mm -hmm. and also the way in which certain local networks uh, caused the rebellion to spread in Syria. Could you, mm -hmm. I know it's tough, but could you give like maybe a, a short summary of uh, the, the contours of the political uh, conflict? So the... Rebellion actually started out as a local rebellion in the Hauran region of southern Syria, which is mainly populated by the Druze. And it was a semi-autonomous statelet of the broader mandate of Syria and Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And it was to have its own local governor, but for various reasons, it had a French governor at the time in 1925. And many were unhappy with the way he ruled um, and set about implementing reforms in the region. Mm -hmm. And um, one, of, one of those who complained about the rule of the French governor was a man by the name of Sultan Pasha al-Atrash. Mm -hmm. Sultan Pasha al-Atrash sent an official delegation to Beirut to complain to the high commissioner, and that delegation was arrested and jailed. And so in response, in collaboration with the Oppositional People's Party in Damascus, the, um, the Syrian re revolt of 1925 basically took off after that. Right. So you have this local conflict uh, over power, I guess, in the Hauran region. You have a local notable of Hauran region going to the central mandate government in Beirut, which uh, turns a, uh, gives them the cold shoulder, so to speak, in a, in a, in a very rude manner. And then... Opposition spreads to Damascus and other parts of Syria. Exactly. So what starts out as a local conflict quickly becomes a mandate-wide political crisis. Exactly. The revolt um, lasted for nearly two years. It began, as I said, in the Hauran region, mm -hmm. and it spread to the outskirts of Damascus and Hama, 
first to Hama and then the outskirts of Damascus mm-hmm. and um, also into southern Lebanon, yeah. as well as elicited the participation of Syrian notables in Aleppo, mm-hmm. although it didn't quite reach the northern provinces. Mm-hmm. So there's this rebellion going on in the French mandate. Uh, how does the, you, you mentioned the Mahjar, which is, I guess, migrants from uh, the Levant, from greater Syria, who are living in all different diasporic contexts. So Mahjar is an Arabic word. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe you can break that down for us if you want. But how do they get involved? What You, you mentioned the press. Where, where does this engagement with the revolt begin? Many of the institutions that existed in the Mahjar, which is broadly an Arabic term, connoting the space of migration and of settlement of mm-hmm. these Levantine communities. And this is broadly speaking in Egypt, in the United States and in the Americas, as well as in places throughout Africa and Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The institutions through which and by which Syrians participated in the revolt from abroad had already been in place. And that is because from the moment that they arrived on the shores of the United States, Syrians and Lebanese had already been setting up newspapers, journals, mm-hmm. charitable societies, you name it. And these, these organizations had very strong connections to the, the original homeland in, in modern-day Syria and Lebanon. Some mm-hmm. of Akram Khater's work, work of right. Andrew Arsan are two examples of showing these long-standing connections well before even the breakdown of the Ottoman Empire. Right, and, and it really takes on... Um, a politicized turn with World War One and the breakup mm-hmm. of the Ottoman Empire. And many of these communities, well, even before then, actually, with the 1908 Young Turk Revolution, yeah. become politicized and want to somehow engage homeland politics from their international positions, from their positions abroad, believing that they had a unique role to play because they could speak to an international audience more easily. By the time the 1925 rebellion takes off, you already had groups like the Syro-Palestinian Congress in Egypt and in Geneva, which had already been working towards the politics of homeland through through the League of Nations, mm-hmm. through petitioning the League of Nations, through um, getting in touch with local powers in France, um, political groups mm-hmm. in throughout Europe basically. Yeah. And, and yeah, and this is an important moment in the mid 1920s because uh to us in hindsight, we think of French mandate in Syria as a colonial regime and a short-lived one, but at this time period, uh Syria is still supposed to be for the Syrians. It's supposed to be a transitional government or mm-hmm. at least this is what's being debated in the League of Nations at that time. Right. And so the goal of the Syro-Palestinian Congress at least up until 1923, was to try to reverse the San Remo decision to make France in charge of the mandatory mm-hmm. um, in Syria and Lebanon. Sure. Um, and once they weren't successful at doing that, then their aim was to try to change the terms of the mandate to bring about a faster resolution, to bring about quicker mm-hmm. independence. Uh, 
Hello and welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here speaking with Reem Bailuni about her research on the uh, transnational aspects of uh, the Syrian revolt of 1925 to 27. I want to remind our listeners that uh, if they want to learn more about this topic, uh, you can consult our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, for a bibliography that has not only uh, what Reem has written on the subject, but also some other useful background reading. Uh, some of the works that have been mentioned and will be mentioned throughout the rest of the podcast. So, Reem, we started off with this excerpt from a from an Arab American newspaper, uh, essentially indicting Syrian Americans, and by Syrian Americans we mean people from greater Syria living in the United States at the time, indicting them for not supporting their compatriots in Syria. So when the Syrian press in the United States is doing this, writing these uh, articles, covering the rebellion, publicizing the rebellion, what is their goal? On the ground, what are they doing uh, to uh, support the rebellion? And what are they also doing uh, to raise consciousness amongst these would-be Syrians who claim to be only Americans? Well, for the most part, they're writing about the revolt in their newspapers, in their journals. They're debating it quite robustly Mm -hmm. in the Mahjar press. But they're also setting up charitable campaigns. They're raising funds for victims, civilians, those affected by the revolt, as well as for the rebels themselves. Um, And they're doing this through a number of ways. They're organizing, for example, um, tag days, um, various other campaigns. They're also setting up uh, conferences. Mm-hmm. The New Syria Party, which was established in the context of the revolt itself mm-hmm. in 1926, was based out of Detroit, Michigan, mm-hmm. Flint, Michigan. And in 1920, January 1927, it organized a conference to raise awareness about the revolt. Um, one, for the Syrians that were in the United States, but also for uh, the broad, broad mm-hmm. American audience. Um, and this convention drew the likes of Emir Sheki Barslan and other members of the Syro-Palestinian Congress to the United States. And it also caused a lot of controversy because not everybody supported the rebellion. Mm. Not all Syrians and Lebanese supported the rebellion. And so, so, like I said, they were also debating the revolt, um, spreading consciousness about the revolt sometimes in negative ways. And I mean, this raises... Two big questions for me. I'll ask uh, the most immediate one first. Uh, it seems to me that uh, the the revolt brings out some kind of issue over what it means to be Syrian in that Mahjar context. Uh, there's some kind of um, tension going on there. I know from some of the work on this subject, for example, Sarah Gualtieri, mm-hmm. her work kind of shows how Syrians, Lebanese and Syrians in the U.S. fought even legal battles to prove that they were uh, white because that is what they needed to uh, be entitled to all the legal privileges of American citizenship in the context of the United States in the early 20th century. And so you had this intense movement towards trying to prove that the community is assimilated, is part of the United States. So again, to call Lebanese and Syrian to support a rebellion uh, that's happening in the Middle East, that's happening in the French Mandate of Syria, uh, one thinks that there would be some kind of tension there uh, with that uh, sort of 
all-American assimilated identity. Right, and there definitely was a lot of tension there. Um, but to, to go back to the question of what it meant to be a Syrian, I mean, that has a long history, right? You mm-hmm. had um, a history of migration, Ottoman migration from the Ottoman Empire to the shores of the United States, to the shores of Latin America. That began in the late 19th century. Yeah. And um, upon reaching the shores of the United States, a lot of these people, based off their Ottoman identity cards, were called or registered as Turks, mm-hmm. or in the Latin American context, Turcos. Now, this was viewed by a lot of Syrians and Lebanese, especially those that were politically conscious, as a misnomer. Um, because most of them were Christians. Most of them were Christians. Um, and, and, because, and, and because it came to take on a derogatory context, especially in the Latin American context where you have highly competitive economic environments because mm-hmm. many of these Syrians and Lebanese were actually prospering economically. Mm-hmm. And so it became a conscientious effort to be called Syrian and not to be called Turk um, because to be called Syrian then would differentiate them from who they described um, in racialized immigrant contexts as their Muslim Turkish oppressors. Mm-hmm. And so in the turn of the century, United States, in a very highly racialized context where you're trying to achieve the status of citizenship and everything that comes along with that, you have to prove that you're white. And to prove that you're white, one way to do that was to emphasize your Christian background. Uh And so with the Syrian revolt of 1925, you have those who are supporting the revolt who define themselves in a pan-Syrian, secular, mm-hmm. nationalist way. Um, but then there are those who were opposed to the Syrian revolt, and these were mainly Christians from Lebanon who described the rebellion as a particularist one that reflected a Muslim or Druze agenda. Uh-huh. And this threatened the Lebanese project. Um, and the reason it did so was because one of the um, points of the re- rebellions in Syrian nationalists was to bring about the unification of the territories of Syria and those territories that were ceded to Lebanon in 1920 mm-hmm. by the French High Commissioner. Um, and so in the context of the rebellion, you also have the question of what it meant to be Lebanese, um, especially in those border regions where the re- rebellion had spread and which had at one point or time been part of Syria. So on the one hand, within the Mahjar communities, you have this sudden divide between those who actually uh, perhaps are uh, sympathetic to French rule uh, in Syria and Lebanon for various reasons, and and those who oppose it uh, and want to actively support the rebellion on the basis of a shared uh, greater Syrian identity, I guess we could say. Um, My second question that comes, you know, is kind of related to that. Uh, and I don't know if you can answer it for me. You you mentioned that they were sending relief through these uh, organizations. And now, just a few years prior, at the end of the First World War, of course, we had Near East Relief, mm-hmm. uh, which is still active in, uh, in the French mandate at this time. Near East Relief, of course, an international charity, but very tied to the American Red Cross, uh, kind of arising out of missionary institutions of the pre-war period. So relief being handled essentially through a non- Certainly a non uh, 
national framework, right? It's international, it's humanitarian, et cetera, et cetera. So when, uh, when Syrian Americans or Syrians in other parts of the Masjar, which is all over the world, really, uh, when they sought to support the rebellion or to provide relief, did that require them to form distinct channels? Were they able to go through the Red Cross? Did they form their own Red Cross societies? How did they deal with this? And, uh, you know, did that also create conflicts? It did create quite the debate about who was correctly dispersing funds for or relief effort for the victims of the violence, as well as whether or not any of those funds that they were collecting for charitable reasons was being diverted for the rebels themselves. Hmm. And so one of the ways that they dispersed this money was to deposit it in certain banks um, in the United States and then have that money wire transferred um, to certain authorities in Lebanon, say if you were um, a supporter of the French mandate, at least that's one of the arguments that you would make was Mm. that you were sending it directly to the Lebanese Administrative Council um, to be directly dispersed to the civilians. Another way would be through churches. So the Maronite Patriarchate was um, receiving funds from people throughout the United States, throughout the Mahjar, for various communities in the South who they had heard had been affected by the revolt or by the -hmm. the spread of the rebellion, by the spread of the violence. Um, Now, if you were transferring weapons, funds, supplies, money to the rebels, there were certain more discreet ways of doing that. Um, And one way uh, that um, people have written about um, is the setting up of like boxes Mm -hmm. in, for example, Transjordan, where money would be transferred to or mailed to this this specific yeah. box, and then um, then it would be smuggled across the border hmm. into Syria and Lebanon. Um, and one of the people in charge of doing this, um, this wasn't only in Transjordan, but also in, in Jerusalem as well, where you had these um, secret channels to get weapons and supplies across across the borders. All right, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Reem Bailouni talking about her research on uh, the 1925 Syrian rebellion and uh, its transnational aspects. It's a really uh, fascinating subject that uh, for those who are listening uh, right now may find that certain aspects of this question are really resonating uh, within the present day debates in the United States and Europe and elsewhere. of course, about relief uh, for Syrians and, and and the very big issue of uh, facilitating or unfortunately not facilitating migration uh, to these countries that, after all, have a very long uh, history of connection uh, to greater Syria. Um, there's one more question I want to ask about this. Obviously, we're not going to talk about everything. We can save some of it for uh, your book, which we'll look forward to. Um, you mentioned that... Uh, Syrians abroad, Syrians in the Mahjar, sought to claim a certain leadership 
over their community, both in Syria and abroad, by virtue of the fact that they were close to power, power mm-hmm. being centered in the West, um, uh, and you know, for various socioeconomic reasons, that they would be uh, appropriate leaders uh, for of a community, even though they're not actually living in the place where that community is based. So I'm wondering, uh, in this context, how were how were the Syrian organizations of the Mahjar able to use that proximity to the League of Nations, to France, to the United States, to these powerful countries, uh, to further their political goals, or were they ultimately not able to do so? Right. That's a really great question. Um, there's one thing about the League of Nations petitioning process that probably should be identified, mm-hmm. and that is to send petitions to the League of Nations from within the mandated territories themselves, one would have to go through the mandate power first, Hmm. which meant that a lot of these petitions or correspondences to the League of Nations could be censored. Um, And so the League of... So So if you're a Syrian and you want to petition the League of Nations and you live in Syria, your petition has to go through the French mandate administration. Exactly. Okay, that's a problem. Or else it would be rejected. Yeah. You could send it directly to the League of Nations to um, to the League of Nations, but it would likely be rejected on the mm. grounds that it didn't it wasn't forwarded through the mandatory power first. Oh, okay. However, if you were a Syrian residing outside of the mandated territories, you could send your petition directly to the League of Nations. And that is what many did. And that is what the Syro-Palestinian Congress did. And actually, the Syro-Palestinian Congress actually built a reputation for themselves because of their persistent petitions to the League of Nations. Mm -hmm. Even if these petitions didn't really bring about much change in the overall picture, they made a name for themselves in Geneva. And they made a name for themselves in Europe. And people writing about them in the New York Times, for example. Um, and so for that reason, Sultan Pasha Atrash designated Sheikh Barslan to be the spokesperson yeah. for the rebels. But this didn't always work out. And one, as one example, we have um, the new high commissioner. A new high commissioner was appointed after Damascus was bombed in October 1925. Mm-hmm. And before taking on his new post, this new high commissioner decided to actually negotiate with Syrians in Europe and Syrians in Egypt. And that's how important of an appearance, at least, they made for themselves. And so, Sheikh Ibrahim actually directly negotiated and spoke with um, the new high commissioner, Henri mm-hmm. de Chauvenal, and presented to the high commissioner some demands, which to a certain extent reflected rebel demands, but to another extent were quite moderate. And the high commissioner himself admitted later on to the League of Nations that he was quite close to agreeing to those demands. Mm. However, upon reaching, he, he, he did this out of his own initiative. And so when he reached the shores of Egypt and he spoke to the Syro-Palestinian Congress there, they presented him with another set of demands that were more strict. And so he turned them down. And he, huh. and he decided from that point forward that he would take matters into his own hands. And so when he arrived in Syria, 
he proclaimed peace for those who want peace and war for those who wanted war. Oh, wow. And later on, when news of these initiatives in the diaspora came came out and and rebel leaders heard of them, Sultan Pasha al-Atrash mainly, but also Abdurrahman Shahbandar, who was a Damascene. Mm-hmm. Shahbandar described Shakib Arslan's initiative as having thrown dust in the eyes of the nation, to paraphrase from Philip Khoury. Um, and basically they, they had believed that the military situation didn't warrant at the time such moderate demands, and it had actually tempered the ability hmm. of the rebels themselves to negotiate with the French mandate. And so here, th- this case is really interesting because you have two diasporic communities arguing for different things, and then you have, of course, the local exactly. context so as well. The the fractions within um, the diasporic community themselves actually negatively, in many ways, impacted the outcome of the rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, you have Sultan Pasha al-Atrash le- writing letters to the New Syria Party in 1927, and this is after the revolt had waned, and acknowledged the importance and the impact of the diasporic community and the diasporic connection. So it was a gray picture, really. Mm-hmm. And so what's the legacy of this for the, for you know, in the Mahjar? In 1929, Shakib mm-hmm. Arslan, Amir Shakib Arslan, writes a letter to Habib, Habib Katiba in New York and tells him how important it was for the diasporic community to continue being engaged in the politics of homeland mm-hmm. and how important it was that the diasporic community had participated through their own channels in the rebellion and that even though the revolt had failed, it had proved to be a lesson for France of the importance of the global Syrian community. Mm-hmm. And he urged him that now wasn't the time to quit, that their fight would continue. And in many ways, the monitoring of the diasporic community by the French mandated authorities, by their consuls, etc., actually picked up after the 1925 rebellion Hmm. because of the various ways in which they had managed to to insert themselves in the picture. And this proved to be threatening for France's global image. So maybe we can think of that as, as one legacy. Right. And I mean, because, because France eventually beat the rebellion and went mm-hmm. on to rule in Syria for another two decades, uh, it's easy to think of it as a failure. However, we, we aren't privy to the details of what would have happened had the Syrian community abroad not been watching. Of course, that's always the uh, right. the unknown. So uh, the role they played in, you know, saving lives through relief and making sure that uh, the rebel movement gained more respect from the mandate government and from the international community, uh, you know, it's important to, to keep in mind what that might have been. Well, Reem, I want to thank you for bringing this uh, really new perspective on the 1925 Syrian revolt, a, a really major political event in the in the history of uh, uh, the 20th century Middle East, indeed a formative event. You know, we've had a lot of great episodes in recent weeks uh, of new approaches to topics in the history of the Middle East in the 20th century. We had 
Usama Makdisi on rethinking sectarianism. And we had a Shireen Saitley's, uh, a conversation with Shireen Saitley about her um, work on capitalism and, and men of capital in uh, Mandate Palestine that really brought a fresh perspective. Uh, I mean, alongside those episodes, uh, your research on this transnational and the transnational aspects of uh, the Syrian revolt uh, is really a great contribution and shows uh, just how much potential there is for rethinking uh, some of the conventional history uh, of the Middle East uh, that we've inherited from uh, prior decades of scholarship. Thanks, Chris. And I hope more people decide to explore the various facets of migrant communities and their impact, their transnational impact. Yeah, and and one place our our listeners can do that is in a journal where you've published. Uh, It's a relatively new journal set up by... uh, Akram Khater, Andrew Arsan, and John Karam uh, about, uh, the, I guess, the Arab diaspora called Mahjar Mashriq. Uh, you've published there. Other people publish there. Others can submit there. Really exciting conversations going on in that journal dedicated to uh, this really large uh, and longstanding uh, Arab diaspora throughout the world. You guys will find some uh, articles from that journal in the bibliography that uh, Reem has provided us on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, which is also a place where you can leave comments and questions, check out some of our other episodes uh, of relevance, uh, and as well as uh, other materials such as maps and images and bibliographies related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East. I want to invite all of you who are listening and haven't had the chance to do so to check us out on Facebook and, and link up with that uh, community of over 20,000 casual uh, and, and dedicated fans of Ottoman History Podcasts who are with us on our Facebook page. Uh, and invite you to uh, leave your comments for uh, discussion uh, within that community so we can get a little conversation going. That's all for this episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I want to thank you all for listening, invite you all to join us next time, and until then, take care.